All right, we are. Uh, tell me, Pansy, if it drops out. You can tell me, can't you? Yes, I can. Okay. All right. As long as somebody's moving. Yeah. <laughs> We're at the. You dropped out. <laughs> Final lesson. Oh. And we are talking about the Old Testament. You're in that connection is unstable. It says, I just got a text message. Yeah. Uh, a little message on the screen said your internet is unstable. Maybe that's Zoom telling you that. That that was what mine kept doing before Brian put in my extender. So we're looking at, and uh, last time, I didn't uh, mute everybody, did I? Let me stop the share for a moment and let me take all the participants and mute all of you. And then I will go back to uh, sharing the screen. And uh, whichever one I was on right here, I think. Okay. We talked about Tobit uh, last week. We want to continue a survey here through the books. Uh, Judith, it's a, you know, it's almost a similar story. It's about this heroine named Judith which means really Jew. It's a feminine form of the word Jew in Hebrew. <clears throat> and uh, some people think it has a lot to do with the Maccabean revolt that we talked about. She's a very virtuous, beautiful woman, uh, sort of like Susanna we'll talk about. And uh, she's responsible for delivering uh, Judah uh, from what's called the Assyrians. Actually, it's a little confusing because it talks about Nebuchadnezzar and his commander, Holofernes. And uh, we'll talk about her a little bit later because <clears throat> there's an issue of ethics that comes up in connection with what she did. Uh, additions to Esther. So this is uh, a separate book or sections of book that's made up of six different sections, 105 verses, 105 verses. They were added to Hebrew Esther in the Greek version produced in the first or second century probably originally placed in the book at the appropriate place, but were then later gathered together at the end by Jerome or maybe others who worked for Jerome and transmitted as kind of separate sections. So I'm guessing he froze up. Yep, it looks like he did again. I don't think we can get off of the screen though. I think Ken froze up too, didn't he? Mm -hmm. What are you trying to do? And it so everybody, everybody Pansy's back. I was just gonna say everybody read your notes, we'll have a testimony. They can't hear me. <laughs> and would it make a difference if they used only one computer or no? Like turned one off. You didn't. 
No, I didn't. Oh. I think I can't hear Nancy either. Hey, Nancy, can you hear us? Goodbye, Bob. Have a oh. good night. Oh, well, Nancy, can you hear us? I can hear you, but can anyone hear me? I can hear you. Now I can because he's I trying to get back on on his laptop. Okay. Someone, oh, okay. Linda asked if maybe if you guys just use. Yeah, one they're computer. still here. Okay. Uh, Linda wondered if you guys used one computer. Would that I'll change start it? Start again here. Computer again. Just turn. Have one turned on, perhaps. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, because Kim and I had that problem with our internet with both of us on um, Zoom meetings at the same mm -hmm. time. Okay. Looks like Pansy's muted. Let me know. <laughs> it says recording. Oh, I'll turn now. There he yeah. is. Go. You're on mute. Pastor Combs, you're on mute. Okay. Well, I don't know. Pansy didn't drop out then. No. That's very strange. Well, let me try. I'll try one more time. But Dr. Combs? Yeah. Someone, uh, Linda Savannah wondered if maybe if you guys just went to one computer, would that solve it just for tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you log off, Pansy? Let Pansy log off. And uh, let me try this again. Uh, let me see. Let me. Because Kim and I had problems when she was doing BSF and I was trying to work. Okay. You got your off. She's yeah. off. Okay. I'm going to mute, mute you all. And then I'm going to um, go back to Esther again. And we'll have to see if we can see. I'll have to leave these folks over here on the side so I can see them. So as I say, uh, it's... Um, these, these number three, these references are to basic religious practices that are missing from Esther. Now, one of the interesting things about Esther is the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. When I say the name of God, I mean G-O-D is not mentioned. Lord is not mentioned. There is no reference to God at all in the book of Esther. And that apparently caused some issues with people over the years. You know, how can this be a canonical book if it doesn't mention God at all? Uh, and so uh, you have a, an additional verses that were probably added to, um, to, uh, to solve that problem, 107 additional verses. Uh, in the in the book were added to the Hebrew, and forty nine references to Lord or God in the English translation that uh, I sent you. So, for instance, here's an example. 
now Esther had not revealed. Uh, let's see if I can put that up. I gotta still see it. Her uh, to her had not revealed her. <laughs> I, I hate. I don't want to get you guys gone. Her not revealed. I guess. Is that what does that say? <laughs> it just says not revealed her. I don't know what I said there. Uh, probably herself, uh, her kindred, or her people, as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In the Greek editions, Esther had not disclosed her country, such as were the instructions of Mordecai, but she was to fear God and keep his laws just as she had done when she was with him. So Esther did not change her mode of life. So you see how they added God to that. Now notice this one here. Um, here's Esther 4.17. So Mordecai went away and did what Esther told him, had told him, him to. And this is the addition. Mordecai went away and did what Esther told him to do. Then Mordecai prayed to the Lord, calling him to, to remembrance all the works of the Lord. He said, oh, Lord, Lord, you are ruled as king over kings. You're, look at all this. <laughs> this is all added to these, these Greek editions that are in the Apocrypha. Um, we, but they're in the Apocrypha now. But we're added in order to, we believe, to make the book seem more canonical because the original book doesn't mention Esther or Lord. There's a lot of discussion about why that is true. Why doesn't the book of Esther mention God or Lord? And uh, one thought is, uh, well, one of my teachers, for instance, Dr. John, late Dr. John Whitcomb, he's got a commentary on Esther. I'm trying to look up on the shelf there and see it. But he argues, now this is, may seem revolutionary to you, but that Esther and Mordecai were not saved Jews. They were not saved. How about that one? And uh, he argues that what the book shows is God's providential care over his people, even when they were in exile, and even when they weren't as obedient as they should be. And he, he, he talks about things like Esther being in this harem. What's Esther doing? I mean, Esther in most Christian, uh, most, most Christians and a lot of Christian literature look upon Esther as a, as a wonderful heroine, you know, she said, you know, if I perish, I perish. And this is looked upon as a very wonderful thing. Uh, he argues uh, that, you know, she, what's she doing in this harem? She shouldn't have even agreed to do this, you know? So <laughs> it's kind of an interesting problem uh, there that uh, he argues that they were, that what the book shows is God providentially took care of these people even when they were out of uh, favor with him, he ruled over everything and preserved them. So that's his idea. But you can see some people had a problem with no reference to God, and they tried to solve it with these verses. Wisdom of Solomon. Uh, this was a, another one of these books like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs that attempts to um, uh, give wisdom, uh, wisdom literature, uh, probably written between 150, 50 BC. 
if we think the author is trying to rekindle a zeal for the law among his fellow Jews and to prove the truth of Judaism to uh, Gentiles. Uh, and that may be the case. Here's Ecclesiasticus. This is one of the most famous books in the Apocrypha. Uh, it's the more, the more ancient title is The Wisdom of Jesus, the Son of Sirach. This Ecclesiasticus is Latin, going back to the church father Cyprian, it means the church book. It's really the same it's really the same name as Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, pretty much the same name, but they're different books out. Ecclesiastes is a book in the canon. It was supposed to, this title was supposed to suggest that this is the most important or the longest of the books not recognized as fully canonical, yet read and discussed in the church. So it's a series of maximum or couplets like the book of Proverbs. And many people have found there's a lot of good things there. Here's a section of it. My child, when you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for testing. Set your heart right and be steadfast and do not be impetuous in times of calamity. Cling to him and do not depart so that your last days may be prosperous and accept whatever befalls you in times of humiliation. Be patient for gold is tested in fire and those found acceptable in the furnace of humiliation. It's, there's a lot of good things here. Those who fear the Lord, wait for, wait for his mercy and do not stray. You who fear the Lord, hope for good things. Uh, consider the generations of old. Anyone has anyone been has anyone trusted the Lord and been disappointed? So these are couplets, wisdom, religious literature that people found very helpful, very encouraging. Now there are things in Syriac in Ecclesiasticus, Ecclesiasticus uh, that are not you know, right. They are, there are some wrong ideas in there, uh, and I'll mention them uh, later here. So Baruch is that uh, book that is attached to the letter of Jeremiah, claims to be the secretary, the amanuensis, the guy who wrote down, and there is a Baruch in the Bible, remember, uh, mentioned the book of Jeremiah, but this is basically a group of sentences drawn from a canonical work, contains prayers and so forth. Remember, I told you this was a common practice uh, in the Apocrypha to, uh, in, in ancient books, to use the name of a real person, a famous person, and say, this book is written by, you know, Jeremiah or Baruch or someone like that to get a hearing for your work. Letter of Jeremiah, that's attached to that. This claim to be written by Jeremiah at the time of the deportation. And of course, you know, there was a real Jeremiah, you know, and so forth. So that's, that's what's what it's claiming, but it's, it's written later. And, and remember, remember what I said at the beginning, the Jews did not accept these books as canonical. That's extremely important. These are Jewish books written for Jews by Jews, religious literature for Jews. We have a lot of Christian literature written by Christians that we don't accept as canonical just because some Christian wrote it. The additions to Daniel, these books in the Apocrypha are actually additions uh, to the book of Daniel, Prayer of Arizariah, Song of Three Young Men, uh, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, written between 165-100. Mainly what they're doing in these additions is supplying additional details about, uh, for instance, Daniel, sort of enhancing his reputation here. Um, let me mention just briefly one of them here, and I'll bring up another screen. 
Uh, one of these is called Susanna. And um, let's see if I can uh, bring this up. <clears throat> Susanna is an interesting book because it's often said to be the world's first detective story. <laughs> can you believe that? The world's first detective story. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but I'll explain why it's called that, the world's first detective story in a moment. But it's about a woman uh, living in Babylon whose husband uh, is very wealthy, very well-to-do, very well-known among the Jews, uh, named jo Joachim, and her name is Susanna. She comes from a very godly family. She's a very beautiful woman, like Judith. Um, and it starts beginning uh, talking about these two elders who were appointed as judges, elders among Israel who were appointed as elders. And uh, they would come to Joachim's house very often. And uh, they began to, uh, shall I say, lust after uh, uh, Susanna. Uh, they were very overwhelmed with her beauty and so forth. They had a great passion for her and so forth. And uh, so they cook up a scheme in order to have sexual relations with her. And what they do is they go into the garden. She has a garden there, a beautiful garden, and the doors are closed and they're hiding in the garden. And they tell her that unless you have sexual relations with us, these two men, we're gonna claim that we saw you with another young man and therefore you'll be condemned, you'll be stoned and so forth. And we, we're the judges. So you have no choice, you know, but to commit adultery with us. And uh, that, she's in a dilemma. She says, you know, what, I, what can I do? I'm completely trapped, she says in verse 22. If I do this, it will mean death for me. If I do not, I cannot escape your hands. But she says, I'm not going to do it. I will fall into your hands rather than sin in the sight of the Lord. So these, uh, she cries with a loud voice. The two elders shouted against her. The people come in and they claim that she has, uh, they saw her with this young man in the garden after the doors were closed and so forth and so on. And these men are well-respected and so forth. Her husband comes in and so forth. And uh, basically they condemn her. Uh, uh, they believe these two judges and uh, they accept their, 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 their story. And uh, unfortunately she has, she says, I've done nothing of these wicked things that they've charged against me. Um, and so we have a young man who comes on the scene and we're told God stirred up the Holy Spirit of a young man named Daniel. And he shouted with a louder voice, I want no part in shedding this woman's blood because they were gonna stone this woman, kill her. And he comes in to the scene and he says, right away, he says, what are you doing? You know, he, he makes this thing that these, he says these judges uh, are, are not telling the truth. I mean, he just says that. So he brings these men back in and uh, he, the first thing he does, he does what I guess policemen do, what we understand police officers do when they are trying to determine in a situation, a crime situation, who's telling the truth or get their stories. And so when you have a couple of people who are involved, the first thing you do is separate them. You separate the two, guy, two people involved 
in different rooms and you question them separately to see if their stories are the same story. And uh, so that's what Daniel does. Daniel separates these two men and uh, he begins to question them. And so he asked the first person, uh, the first man, he said, you saw this woman uh, with this young man. And he says, what tree did you, you know, see her? What, where did you see this at? And he said, it's under the mastic tree. And then he asked the other man, you know, where did you uh, see, where did you see uh, this taking place? Uh, and he said, it's under the evergreen oak. So he proves that they have different stories, <laughs> that they're lying, you know. And uh, so because he's, he, he's able to show that they're lying, then they believe uh, Susanna, the whole assembly raised a great shout, bless God who saves those who hope in him. They took action against the two elders because of their own mouths. Daniel had convicted them bearing false witness and so forth. They put them to death. Hilkiah and his wife praised God for their daughter, Susanna. And so did her husband, Joachim and her relatives because she was found innocent of shameful deed. And from that day onward, Daniel had a great reputation among the people. So it's a very, very interesting story, short story, but quite, quite interesting, quite entertaining. Um, so let's go back here. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about uh, Bell and the Dragon. Those are interesting stories, very interesting to read, but I won't take time to do this. Uh, Prayer of Manasseh is a... a, a Claim a prayer claimed to be written by King Manasseh while he was in exile in Babylon. Remember, he was a wicked king. He did repent based on Second Chronicles, but this was written later. There's nothing wrong with a prayer. It's just a prayer of repentance, but it's not written by Manasseh. First, First Maccabees, we talked about in Second Maccabees. Both of these are very important documents First Maccabees written about 100 BC is thought to be a very reliable account of the Maccabean situation, the revolt, which we discussed quite a bit. Well, we get a lot of information from this historical account. Now it's not inspired necessarily, you know, account, but it is thought to be a generally reliable historical account. And that's true for second Maccabees also, but considered usually thought to be not quite as reliable by those who have studied these books. Let's talk about the, the Apocrypha, why it was never accepted as canonical. Um, the New Testament never directly quotes or refers to any of the Apocryphal books as authoritative or canonical. Now that doesn't mean it couldn't be, any of those couldn't be canonical. It, there's nothing that requires the New Testament to quote from every book. And the New Testament does not quote from every book in the Bible, like Esther. Uh, so it's not required, but it's a little unusual if none of the Apocrypha are quoted, you know, none of the books. No council of the entire church during the first four centuries favored them, and many of the early church fathers opposed them. It, these, the Apocrypha gained strength over time. It was read as religious literature, and then, of course, the Roman Catholic Church favored them greatly. Some of the books contain unbiblical and heretical teachings, such as prayers for the dead and salvation by works. I'll mention those verses in a moment. 
This is a controversial one here. Some of the teachings fall short of biblical standards and are at times even immoral. Now, this is uh, used by some to suggest that, uh, you know, that it's true that some of the teachings fall short of biblical standards. And one of the ones they use is Jesus, Judith is assisted by God in a deed of falsehood. I question whether that's really the case, but I bring it up here. Paul McKenzie sent me a note and was asking me to comment about uh, these kinds of things. We had the situation of Tobit, and we had the angel, you remember, who was telling fibs in the book. Uh, Raphael was saying, you know, he was from the tribe of, he was an Israelite and all that. He was telling all these stories. And the question is, what about that? Uh, are these, uh, are these um, a problem? Are they, you know, what's going on here? Uh, this brings up the question about lying and about, you know, moral absolutes. So I'll, I mean, just give you a little short thing here. Uh, some people hold to what we might call absolutism. That, uh, that, that some of the things we have in the Bible are that, that the commands of God are, are absolutes and there's no, there's no exceptions at all. So, for instance, uh, we have the case of Rahab the harlot. You remember Rahab, when she hid the spies, she deceived her own people and said they're not here. She lied about it, deceived them. We have the case of the Hebrew midwives who deceived Pharaoh. And he said, you know, let me know when they're, you know, you should, uh, if it's, you know, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. And they said, well, we can't do anything about this because uh, they have their children so quickly. You know, so they, they're deceiving. Rahab is, 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 is in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. And the Hebrew midwives, you know, it says that God was, was a kind of the midwives and so forth. It seems to commend them. Um, so what about these kinds of things? Now, the absolutists would say, well, Rahab told a lie and she shouldn't have told a lie. She shouldn't have done that. Uh, but she's in the Hall of Fame because of her faith, not because she told that lie and so forth. And the Hebrew midwives should not have lied to the king, to the Pharaoh. I don't hold that position. Uh, I hold... Uh, sometimes what's called contextual absolutism or graded absolutism. It's not situ situational ethics. It's saying there are absolutes, but sometimes one absolute takes precedence over another. For instance, we have, an, we have, a, we have a command to obey human government, but uh, sometimes there's another absolute that comes in above that, and that's to obey God. So we have to obey God sometimes rather than human government because that's, that's required, God comes first. God's, uh, God's, God's absolute is, is greater. It's, it's uh, in that context, that's required. So uh, about lying, I would say, many say, I'm not just giving my own opinion here, this is a common view that, that uh, we, we have to tell the truth to those who are uh, to those who, uh, um, to those who, um, 
how can I what I say? Um, to those who 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 are justified in receiving the truth, who we are who who have a, a right to the truth. So there are many ex examples of this. For instance, many times in let's take a simple example like sports. In sports, it's okay, it's not considered sinful to lie or deceive people in the sense of deceiving them. Um, in football, we, we have plays where we try to deceive the defense. Or we may, quarterbacks go to the line and they may have a certain thing in their voice. They try to get the other side to jump off sides. In baseball, uh, Sometimes uh, fielders will try to deceive the runner by pretending they're catching the ball when the ball is over their head. They're just trying to, there's, there's deception that's allowed in sports that's not considered, you know, a sinful thing that's lying. And so uh, we don't have to tell the truth to a person who's not entitled to truth. So in times of war, like Rahab, in times of war, soldiers don't have to tell the truth to the enemy. They can deceive the enemy and so forth. If someone breaks into your house and you've got children upstairs and the, and the robber says, where are your children? Uh, you don't have to tell them. Of course, you, the absolutes would say you can say nothing, but I would say uh, you could simply say, that I don't have any children because they're not entitled to know that information. This is a controversial subject. There's no question about it. But uh, so I think in the case of Rahab, that's what's going on, the midwives. Uh, in the case of Raphael, it seems a little difficult though, because Raphael, I don't, I don't know exactly how we justify that. He's an angel. <laughs> uh, there's no example of angels deceiving people in the Bible or any need to, but it's, it's, a little, it's a little odd there because Raphael is telling a number of fibs. So it's, it's, always, it's difficult to, to, be a, to be absolutely certain on these issues, uh, I would say. But we can, you can ask me about that later if you like. But the problem is there are teachings, and I'll refer to some, that are unbiblical clearly. Uh, whether this lying is or not, that's another question. Uh, some of the teachings fall short, we said, of biblical standards. Much of, many of the books contain historical and chronological errors. Now, this is such a blatant problem that many people say it shows that the writers wanted you to understand this was fiction. Judith speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as reigning in Nineveh instead of Babylon. That's like saying the president of the United States, the capital of the United States is in Moscow. You know, if you're writing a, I mean, it's such, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, not Nineveh is the Assyrian capital. But yet in Judith, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is in Babylon. So it's really, I mean, he's in Nineveh. It's really a very strange thing to say. And many think that this shows us it was meant to be a work of fiction. Here's the key one, F. The Jews never accepted these as part of Scripture. Jesus comes to the earth, and he accepts the Hebrew canon. I don't have time to show that right now, but there's a couple of verses that show that. Uh, there's no, the Jews never accept this. It's their literature and so forth. It's only accepted, 12 were accepted by the 
Roman Catholic Church in 1546 as a reaction against the Protestant Reformation. What about the doctrine of the Apocrypha? <clears throat> it's pretty much the same as the Old Testament as far as God is concerned. The law seems to represent the Pharisaic view. The Pharisees believe that the law is eternal. Now, we know the law is not eternal. It was given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai, but the Pharisees claimed it was eternal. Uh, the scriptures are highly venerated, especially the Torah. There's a developing emphasis. We didn't have a chance to talk about this too much, but on spiritual rather than literal sacrifices. And this is probably a developing point because when the Jews were in exile, they weren't allowed to have physical sacrifices. So it becomes that. Ecclesiastes traces the origin of sin to Eve. From a woman, sin had its beginning. And because of her, we all die. Wisdom of Solomon traces it to the devil and second answers to Adam. So there's theological issues here in the Apocrypha that I didn't try to bring up completely. Good works, fasting, and one's own death can atone for sin. A Syriac Ecclesiastes says, those who honor their father atone for sin. Now, this is a very common thing. I didn't talk about it too much, but the Apocrypha is filled with all kinds of verses that talk about good works as atoning for sin. Well, this is really important in the Roman Catholic system, that your good works, uh, the works of others, can atone for your sin while you're in, can help you in purgatory. Their good deeds, their giving, their good works can atone for sin. Uh, angels are frequently mentioned, as we saw with Raphael, and there's prayers for the dead, 2 Maccabees, for if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so they might be delivered from their sin. So that's that's a, reverse, that's a verse referred to quite a bit by the Roman Catholics to justify praying for dead, your dead loved ones who are in purgatory. And by your works, by what you do, uh, they can be released earlier from purgatory. The value of the Apocrypha, there's value as we saw it because it fills the gap between the Old and New Testament. We saw, you know, the development of Pharisees, Sadducees, all that history. It's valuable. And it shows the history of the Jews from the Persian Empire to the birth of Christ. Influence, the Apocrypha was very influential because in the church, and then, as we said, the Church of England, which came out of the Roman Catholic Church, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Paradise Laws refer to many apocryphal books because this was common in the Church of England. They read the, the Apocrypha. They were familiar with the Apocrypha. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. Uh, I've tried to run it down, but I'm not exactly sure. Metzger, who's a kind of an authority, late Bruce Metzger on the Apocrypha, wrote a book about it. He claims some hymns have been influenced by the Apocrypha, except some of Charles Wesley. Now, he cites some lines in Wesley's hymns, which seem to correspond to a things in the Apocryphal book. That's possible that some phrases may, because Wesley grew up in the Church of England, so he'd have been very familiar with the Apocrypha. That may be true. 
Many paintings during the Renaissance gain inspiration, Judith by Rembrandt, inspiration from the Apocrypha. Children have been given names of persons in the Apocrypha, Susanna, Susan, Sue, Judith, Judy, Tobias, Toby. The example of Tobias and Sarah who spent the first three nights of their marriage in prayer in the Latin version. Now that wasn't in the Greek version that we read. We read that they prayed before they consummated their marriage, but in the, uh, in the Latin Bible, Tobias and Sarah spent the first three nights of their marriage in prayer. It was considered the ideal practice of medieval Europe. And I used to kid the guys in seminary that this is the practice they should adopt when they got married, but they never, they never seemed to take a liking to this, this spiritual advice here. So that didn't, that didn't go over. All right, let's briefly just talk a little bit about the pseudepigrapha. Uh, pseudepigrapha, pseudepigrapha, the name means false writings. That's what the name means. But like apocrypha means hidden, it doesn't exactly mean that. It means it's pseudepigrapha, false writings. It's, it's not written by the people who claim to have written it. So it's that sense. But these are books that were never given any consideration for inclusion into the canon. Uh, sometimes the Roman Catholic Church calls this apocrypha because they use the term, the apocrypha, we call the apocrypha they have in their canon. They were written by Jews, some Christian writers between 200 BC, 200 AD. So I'm just, here's what we have. We have a lot of non-canonical books associated with the Old Testament. Now these are just like the apocrypha. They're talking about Old Testament events and people for the most part, the pseudepigrapha diverges from that sum. So what's the difference between the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha? Not really much. They're just all non-canonical. It's just that a certain group of 15 of them uh, got classified as a separate group called the Apocrypha. They were most, they were, they were more important to people. They were read more widely, but they're not that much different from each other. There's really no recognized limit to the number of books here. Uh, about 65 are commonly put in this category, but you know, there's no definitive list on how many books could fall into this category of books associated with the Old Testament, uh, written mostly by Jews, mostly in the intertestamental period and so forth. So here are some of the most common 18. One of these, the letter of Aristeas, I mentioned briefly. This is the letter that talks about the writing of the Apocrypha. It talks about how, not the writing of the Septuagint, I'm sorry. Remember I said there was a myth or a tradition, a legend that said uh, that the, the Pharaoh, the king, asked for Jews to come from Jerusalem and translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And they came... 12 from me, uh, uh, six from each tribe, 72 and all that. That's from the letter of Aristeus. And there may be some truth in it. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of books here. I won't try to describe them all and so forth. Um, there's actually a lot more, but there are books associated with the Old Testament for the most part, most of the time written by Jews uh, that were read uh, by people in that era and later. Most of these books were written in imitation of Hebrew canonical books. So you can see like the book of Adam and Eve, 
Okay. First Enoch. Second Enoch about, you know, Enoch in the Old Testament. Baruch and so forth. The Psalms of Solomon. Okay, these are supposed to be additional Psalms written by Solomon and so forth. Things like that. Psalm 151. So there's 150 Psalms. Here's 151. Uh, Jews and most Christians have rejected these books as non-canonical. However, 3rd and 4th Maccabees, as well as Psalm 151, are given semi-canonical status. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> it's hard to say exactly, but if you look at the canon of the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, here's the Roman Catholic Church, and it's got these uh, books that we talked about. They didn't accept prayer of Manasseh. I don't know why they didn't accept prayer of Manasseh. Prayer of Manasseh, now, I don't see anything wrong with it. It claims to be written by Manasseh. Now, it's not, but <laughs> if you accept all this other stuff, I don't know why you, you don't accept that. But you can see the Greek Orthodox Church and the Rough Orthodox Church accept Psalm 151. Uh, if you read it, it seems fine. It's another psalm, but it's written much later, clearly, than Solomon's time. We know that. So, so you can see that the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and the Coptic, they have an expanded canon. They sometimes given these a semi-canonical, or these books especially here, the Greek Orthodox give it kind of a, well, it's not as canonical as these up here, but it's kind of semi-canonical, whatever that means. It's and you say, well, how do you deal with that? You remember, that's not important to these people because we have the principle of sola scriptura. Scripture is our ultimate authority. It's our, you know, we looked at our final authority. That's not true for them. Their church is their final authority. So what these books say is not necessarily all that important. The church will tell you. What about New Testament usage? It appears that Jude quotes from Enoch 1.9, in Jude 14 and 15. Uh, and Jude 9 uh, relates a story about Archangel Michael contending with the devil over the body of Moses, which Clement of Alexandria and Origen tell us comes from the assumption of Moses. However, the latter, we're talking about this story here, this assumption of Moses, is not in, in, is not in the incomplete text of the works which we possess today. So, I don't know, we don't know anything about this. We just know that there's a story in Jude 9, a true story about Archangel Michael contending with the devil of the body of Moses. Whether that was in another work ever, I don't know. We don't really know. We don't have it and so forth. We do know about Enoch 1.9. So Jude does quote from what Enoch 1.9 says in Jude 14 and 15. I say, there is no problem with biblical authors quoting sources that are not inspired. Jude does not quote these sources as scripture. He doesn't say scripture says, he just says Enoch says. Inspiration guarantees that the data that may, they may have taken from these sources is true. So inspiration guarantees, because it's in the Bible, it's inspired, that what Jude quotes from Enoch, that part is true. It doesn't guarantee that all of Enoch is true. It just guarantees that that uh, episode out of Enoch is true. So here's the old, the New Testament quoting from an a pseudepigraphal book, or at least a verse from an a pseudepigraphal book. Well, we say a verse, we know it's the same truth. It looks the same. It looks like that verse exactly. 
The Old Testament quotes from a number of non-canonical sources. So this is not something unusual, but you may have not paid attention. I just put three of them in here, but there's at least 10 or 12 of quotations uh, like the book of Jasser is quoted in Joshua 10, 13. The annals of the king of Israel, the annals of the kings of Judah. So there were books written in, in olden times <laughs> and, New Test and Old Testament writers quoted from these books. They gathered material. They got material from these books. Inspiration guarantees us that what was down there and what is down there is true and accurate. It doesn't say these books are true and accurate. Now, we don't have these Old Testament books, but there's a number of them. So the principle is here that New Testament writers can quote from an Old Testament source, from a, from a non-canonical source. Uh, there's not a problem with that. Uh, it doesn't mean that what they're quoting from the entire work is necessarily uh, and not at all uh, inspired, inerrant, and that kind of thing. Okay, I kind of went